This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, website, portfolio, or an online store. To create your own space, visit squarespace.com and save 10% by using offer code TREK8. And also by TrekFan. It's not just a fan club, it's an adventure. You'll explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. Don't miss out. Help move us toward the Star Trek future by visiting trekfan.org. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm slash donate to get our new alien badges and art prints, featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Treks and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me as he is every week from over there in Texas, the Lone Star State, it's Matthew Rushing. Matthew, how are you doing now that summer is kind of winding down a little bit? You know, Chris, it's actually nice that summer's winding down. It has been a long summer. It hasn't been too hot here. Uh, it was hot for a few weeks uh, in a row and uh, hit the hundreds a lot. And now it's back to just being in the 90s. So it feels like summer is winding down. Uh, all the college kids are going back to school now. Kids are going back to school. So, yeah, everything is slowing down just a little bit. Um, and uh, so it's nice. I'm, I'm glad, I, you know, I enjoy summer. Um, but, uh, summer can take it out of you here in Texas because it's so hot. And so it's nice that it's going away. (laughs) Yeah. Plus you've had a really, really busy summer. I know you've been on the go quite a lot. There, yes, there was a span of about three months where I don't think that I had a day off of something to do. Like there was something planned every day for, you know, even the weekend. So it has been very nice. This this week I have uh, come home from work um, and I have watched a lot of TV um, and finishing Dayton's book that we'll, we'll be talking to him this week. And so, yeah, it's been a, a, having a lot more rest. So just really thankful for that. How about you, Chris? About the same here, you know. I mean, kids have been on break, so it's been very, very busy every single day. We feel like we just can never stop uh, to take a break. And <laughs> like you, you know, fitting in reading Dayton's book was something I fit in over the past week. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to be able to sit down and just read it straight through. But uh, with all the activity that's going on in the summer, it's really tough. So, like you, I'm also glad that summer is starting to wind down a little bit. And uh, the fact that we're also, by the time this episode drops, less than a week, only like four or five days away from the kickoff of college football season. And that's when this will become Woo-hoo! college football tracks instead of literary tracks. Yes, this will be sportsball.net. Uh, um, I'm sorry for all of you who, uh, in sportsball FM, uh, I, we apologize. Uh, it's <laughs> just right. going to happen. Um, because we're going to be talking about, obviously, the big game, Alabama, Texas A&M, uh, huge game, 
um, you know, Alabama being ranked number one, <clears throat> whatever. Um, and uh, and <laughs> what was that cough right there? Oh, oh, it, it was just a mistake. I'm sorry. I apologize there, Chris. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. You know, Chris, speaking of, you know, catching up on things, I love our first news story um, because Trek Corps has gone back in time with Kirsten Beyer, um, ending their month of Voyager celebration with a retrospective on the Voyager relaunch novels. I loved this article. It was great that they had Kirsten do this. Yeah, it is nice to include the novels, not just the on-screen material as they wind that down. And of course, as we know from having Kirsten on the show here, she's just a real delight to talk to. And not only have the Voyager relaunch novels been a great success and a wonderful gift to Voyager fans, but you know we've got this great new material coming up as well. And I guess we talked about last week, two weeks ago, uh, about Protectors, which will be coming up in 2014 as well. Yeah, so if if you're a fan of Voyager, you haven't gotten into the relaunch series, this is a great way to catch up, get an idea of what's been going on. Kirsten does a fantastic job of recapping all the books, telling you all the important points so you can really follow the storyline. Um, and it's a great resource, though, for anybody who just wants to refresh. You know, uh, I've read Homecoming series a very long time ago. Um, and so it was great to be able to read Kirsten's recap of those because... I can't remember, honestly, the last time that I read Homecoming. It's probably when it came out, you know, years and years ago. So this is just a great resource for anybody who wants to know a little bit more about the Voyager relaunch or just, uh, you know, get a great refresh. A refresh is always welcome because like you, you know, I've read a lot of books a long time ago. And while I remember the basic plot lines of the books, I don't remember the details in the way that I would like to. But as soon as you get that refresh going, it all comes back to you. You know, speaking of Voyager, I think about things like Mosaic or Pathways, which I read in hardcover when they came out. And uh, But if you ask me details about those books right now, I'd have to go and read up on it to be able to remember because it was so long ago. Well, and if we were listening to To the Journey right now, that would be part of the drinking game. We'd, we'd have to take a shot because we mentioned <laughs> Mosaic and Pathways. So <laughs> That's a double shot. That's yes, right. <laughs> that's right. We like to do double shots on literary trips. That's right. That's right. That's why we're having such a good time. <laughs> so we'll put a link to this in the show notes, and you can go over to Trek Core and check it out. And uh, hopefully we'll have Kirsten on the show here again before too long, certainly when Protectors lands. Well, Chris, uh, the next thing we have is is going into some comic news, and we've been talking about this for a while now, and we have uh, some great new sample pages from the Star Trek Newspaper Comics Volume 2 that IDW is going to be putting out, and uh, the Trek Collective has these up, and I have to say, these look fantastic. Um, the, the, the work that they've done to really get these uh, looking so good is, uh, is just phenomenal work. I, I'm, I'm very impressed. It's really cool. You know, I keep, I don't have volume one yet, but as I go to Amazon sometimes to, you know, purchase various items that I need, this keeps popping up because I search for so much Star Trek stuff and they keep throwing those recommendations based on your searches out at you. And uh, I get really close to pulling the trigger on ordering volume one. I haven't done it yet, 
But now looking here at these images from volume two, it gets me even more interested. And I'm pretty sure that I'm going to have to get both of them, you know, once volume two actually lands. I'm I'm right there with you, Chris. I, I feel like I'm going to have to do the same thing. Um, I encourage everybody to go check out these sample pages. We'll put the link in the notes. These look really beautiful. And I do hope that people will go out and get this in, in October from Amazon or, or wherever you uh, do purchase your books, because this is, this really is good work. And they've done a great job of preserving something um, that may have just gotten lost along the way uh, if they hadn't gone and done this now. I still can't believe I missed these when I was growing up. Uh, it certainly must not have been in the Birmingham paper because I look at this one page right here and at the bottom it says November 8th, 1981. And it's a color comic, so it looks like it was in the Sunday paper. And it's right. exactly the thing that I would have been using my silly putty on in right, 1981. Exactly. So <laughs> the fact that I missed it, it just must not have been in my city. So uh, we'll put links to that in the show notes as well. And again, the Trek Collective has the full-size, very large images you can go check out. And I'll look for these when they land in the stores. Also, Matthew, we have information on the November IDW comics that will be coming out. And by then, we will have gotten the first issue of the Khan comics, which, you know, last week we talked about Nero, kind of in preparation for Khan coming out. And in November, we'll be getting con number two. This one looks really good. I, I love that they've continued to get Paul Shipper to do the artwork for these. Um, I, I think he's a great artist. I really love the comic uh, work here um, and just the artwork for the cover alone. So, um, And I'm really excited that they're finally going to be giving us um, in this background that, you know, watching the film In the Darkness, we all uh, felt like, there was so much more that, that could have gone on that we had missed um, with this con story. And, uh, you know, we did talk about Nero last week. I, I think we both hope that this is even better than Nero. I, I liked it better than you did. But I, I think they have a good idea of, okay, we've, we've done Nero. We kind of gave him a backstory. But Khan was already a better villain anyway in the first place. So they have a lot to work with here. So I, I suspect that this is going to be a fantastic series when it comes out. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do, especially reading the description where they say, witness the never-before-seen outbreak of the legendary eugenics wars and behold Khan Noonien Singh's brutal rise to power as the secret history of the future is finally revealed. And I'm interested to see that because I... I've said many times here, I didn't have a problem with them using Khan in the movie, the character of Khan, but I feel like halfway through the movie, they just, they missed an opportunity. Right. Uh, they had a really interesting thing going with him being associated with Section 31 and what was going on there. And after that, they kind of missed it. So yeah. I didn't mind them using the character. And here it's going to be interesting to see the eugenics wars played out in an right. alternate timeline. Right, exactly. And, you know, they say here, witness the never-before-seen outbreak. And, I mean, I guess that's true. You know, we do have some background of the eugenics wars. You know, certainly Greg Coxfield, all that stuff in his eugenics wars novels. But it'll be interesting to see what take they put on it in an alternate timeline. Definitely, definitely. Um, and then next, we'll have uh, Star Trek 
27, the ongoing series, which is exciting because the Enterprise will be facing betrayal from within its own crew as it tries to prevent the Klingon-Romulan War from spreading into Federation space. Um, this, I mean, even, and this one too, the cover alone, I mean, it just looks like a really epic story. I, I, I'm so honestly surprised that they're just letting them do this in the comics instead of, you know, somehow making this the next movie, because this is, this is a big deal. Yeah, it would make a great movie. I, I guess it's just the time gap, you know, they're, they've got to fill it in and it would get kind of boring to just have ordinary adventures for the next three years before a movie comes out but it would make a great movie yeah as far as the betrayal goes okay i'm gonna make a prediction here matthew tell Mm -hmm. me what you think it's got to be keenzer because you know it's always the quiet types uh you know um i'm with you i think it could be keenzer um (laughs) i'll be disappointed you know in the little guy um yeah goodness you know scotty has just done so much for him and uh, just apparently not caring. So I'm I'm a little disappointed. So That scene where Scotty is looking right at Keenzer and questioning him about his actions and Keenzer's just staring at him. Mm-hmm. And Scotty, he gets it all just from the look. He knows exactly what happened and he gets Keenzer's heartfelt admission of betrayal. <laughs> Oh man, I, I feel bad that we've ruined the story for everyone already. Just, <laughs> I really do. Um, I guess we weren't supposed to let that slip, but uh, Keenzer is the, the big jerk uh, in this series, so I apologize for everyone. Um, <laughs> He's a little guy, but a big jerk. <laughs> exactly. Little guy, big jerk. It's surprising. Um, and then last, we're going to get volume six, the After Darkness is going to be all put together there. And, you know... What can I say? We both read After Darkness, uh, and the only parts that we were really excited about were all the intrigue that's going to lead into this big, huge war with the Romulans and the Klingons, which I've been dying to see play out uh, more, and just waiting for it to happen. Instead, we got a rehash of a monk time, sort of. Uh, And so, um, I, yeah... Uh, volume six wouldn't be my favorite, but I do like the cover art for it. So that's always nice. Yeah, it's one of those things. Like if you haven't read it yet, then it's a good opportunity for you to pick it up in one volume. But I'm with you. I was not thrilled. Uh, the artwork was nice, but story-wise, they could have done a whole lot better with After Darkness yeah, than what they did. Definitely. Well, that's all we have in news today, Matthew. But before we jump into our feature discussion with Dayton Ward about From History Shadows, let's tell everyone about our sponsor for this week's show, Squarespace. They're the all-in-one platform that combines hosting and content management to make it simple for you to create your own space online. And that could be a blog, it could be a website, a portfolio, or an online store. I've been a Squarespace user myself for the past six years. I build not only my company's website, but Trek FM is built on Squarespace. I build websites for clients on Squarespace, and my personal blog is there as well. And you know, apart from the simple fact that the tools are really awesome, what I really like about Squarespace is that they are constantly improving their platform. They're adding new features, new designs, and even better support, which is amazing because they have the best support you're going to find anywhere, but they're always striving to improve that. 
And I love that about them. It's incredibly easy to use, but if you want some help, they're there for you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And amazingly, that great support and all these amazing tools starts at just $8 a month. And if you sign up for the annual plan, you can even get a free custom domain name. So it's really an amazing service. And Matthew, why don't you tell everyone about three points about Squarespace that really show why it is the platform to choose when you want to create an online presence? Well, Chris, I think one that's really important to me is that Squarespace is design focused. Um, I don't know about you, but I really hate going to a website that everything is so cluttered. It's hard for me to be able to find anything. It's so overdone that I'm really missing, I think, what the website's meant to do, which is to give me whoever's doing this website their content. And Squarespace really helps you do that. Their their templates are extremely clean, um, and they allow your content to take the focus of the website, which is so important. I mean, you know, if you're writing a blog or you're creating a store and, and showcasing your work art-wise, you really want that to be what stands out, not the website itself. Uh, you, you want it to be easy to navigate and to use, and, and Squarespace does that really well. Uh, and then, of course, if you're creating, say, a blog or some sort of store where you're selling your merchandise or any of those kind of things, you're going to want to be able to connect your site to all the different accounts that are out there, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Instagram, Google, all of these social network sites that really help you to be able to get your content out there. Squarespace makes that easy. You don't have to worry about that. It helps you link to all those accounts and be able to share very quickly what you're doing on your blog right away with your followers. And then for the most important thing, I think now these days, Chris, is that, you know, you have an iPad. I have an iPad. We both have iPhones. We tend to look up websites on those. Nothing is more frustrating than going to a website and having to try and navigate on especially your iPhone uh, or your mobile device and not having the website be responsive to the mobile design, but also have it be a smart mobile design. So it doesn't feel watered down. It just feels like a better, easier to use website on your device. Squarespace does that perfectly and has unique mobile designs so that Every time somebody visits your site from, say, a phone or some sort of iPad or some tablet or something like that, your site automatically scales to look beautiful on every device, which is, you know, really important, again, if you're trying to have your content take first stage. Most definitely. That's been a huge time-saving feature for me because I no longer have to worry about building one version for the desktop and one version for mobile. It's a, it's a great feature. And, you know, another great feature that they added recently is the e-commerce feature. So if you want to set up a shop and sell things, you can do that in just a matter of minutes, including the ability to process credit cards online, which is, of course, very important if you want to actually sell something and make it easy on your customers. So that's there now as well. And you can do all of this without any coding knowledge whatsoever. You can create a beautiful website, beautiful blog, beautiful store. You don't need to know how to code anything. But if you do love to code and you want to have complete, total control over every little aspect of your website and its code, you can do that too because Squarespace has a fantastic developer's platform that you can access. But don't take our word for it. Try this for yourself. We would love for you to go and find out firsthand why 
I build all my websites on Squarespace and why Trekka Film is built there as well. Just go to squarespace.com to start a free 14-day trial. There's no credit card required. Just enter your name and email address, and in a matter of minutes, you'll be building your website. If you already use a platform like WordPress, you can import your website from there, see how it's going to look on Squarespace, see how the Squarespace tools give you everything you need to create an exceptional website or blog. Then when you decide to sign up, and I know you're going to want to, make sure to use our offer code TREK8 to get 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts. And as I mentioned at the beginning, if you choose the annual option, you'll also receive a free domain registration. So visit squarespace.com and use offer code TREK8. And we thank Squarespace for their support of Trek FM. And we thank you for supporting Squarespace. And that helps us bring this programming to you every week. We are so glad to have back today, Chris, Dayton Ward. Um, I think you'll remember uh, Dayton was our very first guest on our very first Literary Treks show. It was fantastic to have him. We were talking about his last book in the Vanguard series at that point, the, the novella that he had done to wrap up the entire series, which was fantastic. Today we're joined by him because we want to talk about From History's Shadow and Chris, we've read a ton of TOS books this this summer. I, I think you'll agree. It, it's been all TOS all the time, except for Christopher Bennett's wonderful Enterprise novel, which we uh, talked about just a few weeks ago. And this book here is set in the original series, but it's it's really a standalone um, that utilizes the 1950s UFO paranoia, the Cold War, the space race, the 60s, uh, you know, everything that you love about that era, plus... Characters like Roberta Lincoln, Gary Seven, combining all of the time travel episodes from that point uh, in TOS when they go back to the 60s as well. And so Dayton does a fantastic job of this, and we're excited to have him on to talk about that. How are you doing tonight, Dayton? I'm fine, guys. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, glad to have you on. We've come full circle. Show one to 32. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I remember doing a show with you all even before you had the Literary Treks channel. It was... Oh, that's we right. We talked about yeah. uh, that which divides this time last year, or maybe earlier last year. But and then I, I came we back did, later yeah. to do literary treks. So, ice road truckers, right? There you go, ice road truckers in space. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. They're on uh, Chris's own interview that's show, right. Matterstream. So, a little <laughs> plug for there for everyone who's not checking out Matterstream. But, um, well, Dayton. We were talking a little bit before the show, and we kind of just wanted to talk about, I think, on the show for everyone, there has been a, a lot of TOS this summer. I mean, and we we just said, you know, every book has been TOS, even if it's been JJ's TOS, except for Christopher Bennett's uh, Enterprise novel, which just came out last month. And so, one, can you tell us maybe as an author, why was it so TOS heavy this summer? Well, um, and, you know, some of this is going to be supposition on my part, and then you know, and educated guests based on past experience and all that. Um, you know, the, of course, the, you know, the big Star Trek story of the year was the new movie. Um, so Pocket, uh, likes, you know, was trying to tie into that as, as best they could. So, you know, the, what they have is the original version of Kirk and the gang. And then, of course, later on in the year, the, the 2013 schedule is going to be dominated by the 24th century because we're getting ready to right. kick off the fall miniseries, which will be all DS9 and, um, Next Generation, and then right at the top of the 2014 will be a new Voyager novel. So it kind of is a cyclical thing. And then, um, but the truth is, you know, TOS books and next gen books are the ones that sell the best. Um, 
they still do very well in terms of sales numbers, and so you know, that's they're going to go with what works a lot of the time. Uh, and as far as the authors themselves, you know, we we basically get asked, you know, what do you want to write? I need a book for you know this part of the year. What do you want to do? You want to do a TLS book? And then a lot of times I'll say yes, <laughs> given given the freedom and it's a choice, I'll probably defer to TLS. All right. Um, for stuff like the fall or the Typhon Pack, you know, I get asked mm -hmm. to write a book for that series, so that's how I end up writing Picard and, mm -hmm. and the Enterprise E Gang. But I mean, it, you know, if, if my editor calls up and says, "Hey, I need a book for the twenty whatever schedule," you want to write one? And I'll say, "Sure." Can I do a TLS book? <laughs> so I'm probably yeah. part of the problem because I'm sure there's <laughs> gotcha. at least a couple of the other guys that do the same thing. What is um you know what's the difference between for you writing say TOS and then doing something like you just did and, and it'll come out uh, the beginning of next year I think it is Peaceful Kingdoms what's the difference for you there? Well TOS is still my favorite of all the different Star Trek shows so it's always fun to be able to take Kirk and the gang and do something different with or do something new with them um, and then you know the last couple ones I've done. I've been able to set the tale during the five-year mission, which is my personal favorite. So I don't think you can ever have enough five-year mission stories. Uh, I know I know there are fans out there who spend a lot of time trying to make it all fit, like on a calendar or a timeline, and make right. it, and there's way too many adventures for them to ever to have realistically, you know, fit it into a five-year mission. But who cares? <laughs> it's like Batman or James Bond or. Tarzan yeah. stories. You can never have Wait, too many of them if they're good so ones. So Daniel right. Craig is Sean Connery. <laughs> yes, Sean yeah. Connery is Daniel Craig. I don't understand. And how does George Lazenby fit into that? Yeah, and 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 and, and, <laughs> and, and uh, what's his name? David Niven. Where'd he come from? Exactly. <laughs> Roger Moore. But, what? I used to fret over that kind of stuff. And at some point a while back, I just said, you know, the heck with it. It's all made up. It's all make believe. Let's just go with it and right. have fun. So it's kind of like you know, pulp writing a pulp fiction book. Right. More the merrier. I'll keep writing TOS five-year mission stories until they tell me to stop or they outlawed or something. Yeah. Well, Dayton, that is something that I, I kind of wanted to know. And we've talked to some of the other authors this summer about, you know, so you get, you, you're going to write a TOS story. How in the world after, you know, 700 novels, more than half of those are TOS. How do you at, try to add something new to something that's been so explored, especially say the five-year mission. Well, I mean, to me, the, it's it's just the characters themselves. They're the they're they're the drawing power for me. So I can always find something interesting for mm -hmm. Kirk and Spock and the Enterprise gang to do, um, whether or not it fits, you know, into the framework. Or like I said, we we, we could we right. could spend all day agonizing over whether there's enough space in that period of time to fit everything, but. Um, that's just the most fun for me. It's just like writing a dime store, pulp fiction book, like what had been done back in the '40s. You know, mm -hmm. it's the characters never age. You know, they're always there. Uh, think about it like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the the series of books that's been really popular for like 40 years now. Mac Bolan, you know, the Executioner, or um, what's his name, Remo Williams. You know, the yeah, that's ringing a bell, actually. Yeah, you know, they're men's, they call them, they classify them as men's adventure fiction. They're mm -hmm. just basically some military esque type thrillers, and mm -hmm. you know they've been writing those things nonstop for forty years. And the character never ages, never changes, never mm -hmm. well, maybe not never changes, but never ages. He's always there in his prime, no matter how long it take, you know how long the books have been going. And so for right. me, the five year mission era of the of the original series crew. Uh, I view them that way. There's always going to be something I can do with them. Yeah, that's really cool. 
In terms of adding something new to TOS, though, I know one thing that you did here that was interesting, though, is taking elements even from Enterprise with the Temporal Cold War and working that back through the timeline so that at least even though Kirk and Spock, you know, initially don't know anything about that, there were people in Starfleet that had some awareness of it. And that was an interesting way to add something new to TOS that and still stay with the five-year mission. Yeah, I, I, for this book, uh, From History Shadow, it's it's a book that had, the idea had been rattling around in my head for, for years. Um, I don't, if you've, if you've been following all the stuff that I've done, you know that I wrote a short story for one of the Strange New World anthologies called The Aliens Are Coming. And it's basically a confrontation between uh, John, you know, Captain John Christopher from the TOS episode uh-huh. uh, Tomorrow Was Yesterday and James Wainwright, the, the Air Force captain from the DS9 episode Little Green Men, who at 20 years later is working for the Air Force as part of Project Blue Book. And he has photographic evidence of the Enterprise in orbit. And he knows that Christopher saw the thing, or at least believes he saw the thing. So he basically calls him, calls him in, and uh, they interview him or inter- interrogate him. So I did that for the Strange New Worlds anthology. And then at some point after that, I started thinking about I should have been able to do more with that idea. I kind of looking back on it, I rushed through that story, and there was a lot there left untapped. untapped. So I started sketching out an idea of how I could expand the you know into a novel and. I pitched it once before years ago to um, Marco Palmieri, who was still an editor of Pocket at the time. And at that point, it wasn't a TOS book. It was actually going to be a DS9 book that uh, I pitched. Yeah. And it wow. had basically this a lot of the same core elements that take place on the 20th century timeline, but um, it was just a DS9 framing story instead of a TOS story. And, I, and he passed on that, so I put it in the drawer and forgot about it. And Pocket's been keeping me busy for you know these, these last several years. But at one point last year, my editor asked me if uh, I was ready to do another TOS novel after I'd finished uh, That Which Divides. And I said, yeah, I, I could do something. And then I was pondering what my idea would be for the novel, and I remembered this pitch that I had in my files. So I hmm. took it out, rewrote it to be a TOS framing story instead of a DS9 story, changed up some of the other stuff, and off we went. Yeah, that's really cool. One thing that I asked Matthew last night, Matthew and I were talking, and I asked Matthew that I wonder if for Dayton, did this book come out of a love for Star Trek as much as it came out of a love for UFO history and and all that (laughs) behind that? I'm not a UFO conspiracy nut, if that's what you're asking. No, Um, no, I'm I'm not either, but I've always been fascinated by. Uh, Yeah. I'm kind of like, it's like, Bigfoot, you know, I'm yeah, fascinated right. by it, but I'm not necessarily convinced that one's going to walk out of the woods behind my house. You know? Exactly, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I've always kind of had a fascination for the UFO thing. And, of course, I'm a big fan of the X-Files and mm-hmm. uh, other UFO-type uh, or conspiracy-type shows or things like that. Like, uh, there was a show back in the 90s called Dark Skies. Yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Right. But its basic yeah. premise was weaving in an alien invasion that takes place behind the scenes of our history, starting from the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. Actually, it started from the Roswell landing and then proceeds forward to the Kennedy assassination, and that's where we pick up the storyline. But I'd always been a fan of that kind of stuff, and so this book is definitely inspired by those types of stories. So, what was it like? And then um, going through, and you know, you have a lot of history in you know UFO enthusiasm. What's it like then? What was the research process like for that? 
I did a lot of reading, uh, and my wife is actually a fan of you know the unexplained stuff. So she's big into paranormal and uh, unexplained phenomena and mysteries. So like the Bigfoots and UFOs and the pyramids and Easter Island and all that. And so we had some books actually. We had a few UFO books. We had a couple on the Roswell landing, and we had one on Project Blue Book. And then I had uh, acquired while doing research for the original version of this outline, I'd acquired a couple of old paperbacks that were written back in the 50s and the 60s by hmm. prominent UFO conspiracy theorists. And so I had kept them, and so I, I basically had to drag those out and reread them because they were written during that period, they, you know, so they, they right. had that perspective instead of being many years later. Um, so that was fun to read. And then, of course, I had to immerse myself in the period, so you know how people talk, how, what they worked with, the technology that was mm -hmm. available at the time, and you know, everybody smoked, and it was good for you, and <laughs> things right. like that. Where things were, like you know what you know, Air Force bases were either Army airfields or you know they were named differently, or uh, places that we take for granted didn't exist yet, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of fun, a lot of research actually. I think I got most of it right. At least I, I'd like to hope so. Yeah, it felt very. Um... It just felt very real in in that sense, and I, I really liked that because uh, it felt like you were immersed in that kind of um, Mad Men type world where you know everything is very different than what we you know know now, um, and the the attitudes are a little different. You didn't really shy away from that too much either, which I thought was great. Uh, I did love the fact that they all smoke all the time um, <laughs> because, you know, I, that, it's very realistic, you know, and lots of times we kind of shy away from some of those things, and that's just the way it was then. So I think I had one character that's a chain smoker. He, ch he was smoking the whole time. He was working. Yeah, yes. In fact, I, I, I feel like I remember him lighting his cigarette on the end of the other one. So <laughs> yeah. the, <laughs> yeah. the classic there. You, you know you're a chain the, smoker when you the, can't even stop. The magazine, the magazine writer. Uh, yes, Cal yes, Cal. Who yep, was, yep. He was totally inspired by um, Sid Hutchins, who is a character from L.A. Confidential, and in the okay. movie version, he right. was played by yes. Danny DeVito. Yes, he was totally inspired by that character. That's funny. We got to keep it on the the DL, the the hush hush. Yeah, exactly. On the QT. That's right. Uh, on the QT. Yeah, the, Very the, the DLs later. The DLs doesn't come. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, you know, Dayton, this book really um, works as a sci-fi book as much as it does um, anything else. And in and, and a lot of ways, it's because the Assignment Earth Gary 7 episode is very much that kind of 60s B-movie feel in a Star Trek episode. Really kind of, in some ways, I think they were trying to launch a pilot for a Gary 7 type of show. Yeah, it was, so it, it was it, a backdoor pilot for what they hoped would be a spinoff. And I've always been a fan of that episode. I mean, it's not a great episode. Um, you could even argue that it's not even a good episode. But for whatever reason, the premise that it introduces has always intrigued me. Just the, the idea of these agents working on Earth behind the scenes. Has always right. been a favorite thing of mine from Star Trek, and I'm an absolute total fanboy for Greg Cox's uh, uh, Eugenics Wars books. Um, I had, yes. when I when I had seen what he when I saw what he had done with those two books, I was so jealous um, in a good way. You know, I, I didn't wish him ill will. Or <laughs> I mean, I was just like, good, you know, I, I wish I had done something like that or had a chance to do something like that. So I, I deliberately tried to make this book fit with those books. 
uh, in terms of tone and how the, how the the like Roberta Lincoln is portrayed and things like right. that. I definitely wanted to be able to put them alongside each other and complement each other. Yeah, it really does work. Um, and and I think what makes it so nice is you know as we talked about this fact that there is this TOS centric beginning of the year. I loved that this book felt so much more just like a great sci-fi novel than just a Star Trek novel the whole time. Um, and I think that that's a really high compliment to be able to take this and, and turn it into something that, you know, I'm not so worried about what's happening with Kirk and Spock. I'm actually invested in all these other characters that could be in a great sci-fi novel that, you know, I just picked up by, um, by anyone. And so I loved that fact that you were tying Star Trek in with the classic science fiction from that era and really making it work. Thank you. I appreciate that. I had a lot of fun writing this one. I, I, I had, more fun than when is probably appropriate or healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that I don't have fun writing anything, other things that I'm working on, but I, for whatever, this has been like a pet passion project of mine, something I've been wanting to do for a lot of time, a lot of years. And it just never, there was never a time it seemed appropriate to pitch it with all the other things that were going on and all the, and all the stuff that pocket has had me do for them over the last few years. Uh, it just happened that there was a gap that my editor asked me to fill, and she asked me if I had a TOS idea, and I really kind of scrambled before settling on this one because uh, how quickly she needed an answer from me, and I realized I had the makings of what could be a TOS novel if I just reworked this idea a little bit. Um, and it's I know it's different. It's definitely atypical, um, but that's what I love about it. And, of course, once they showed me that first stab at the cover... Um, yes. I was so in on that cover. That's probably it's. I don't know if it's my all-time favorite, but it's got to be in my top two or three. It's a cool cover. So you said she needed an answer from you very quickly. Well, yeah, she was, was she the... was working on the schedule, and you know, she was basically trying to. And it was it wasn't so much she needed an answer like a specific plot line. Just you know, are you can uh, I put you on the calendar for writing a TOS novel for this month of the year? So I, I didn't want to say no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was wondering if after you chose this one, then you realized that this book actually, and I guess my question is, did this book require a lot more time for you to research than other Star Trek books that you've written in the past? Uh, yeah, it did. I actually I had a little bit longer to write it than I normally get. I think I had an extra okay. month and a half than I normally get mm -hmm. uh, from from the time I'm given the green light to write a you know, my, from the time I'm given my outline to the time the manuscript is due, the typical window for me is about four months usually and this time I got more than that so I had extra time to do the research and uh, it worked out well because I, I ended up needing it uh, I ended up doing a lot of extra reading to nail down some things and rewatching stuff like the, the Carbon Creek episode and yeah. the various uh, other tie-in episodes yeah well I bet because as I'm reading you know a lot of the historical elements that you included in here it's stuff that I was very familiar with because I've done a lot of reading on this myself over the years. And so I know how much reading is involved and like how much stuff is out there. So I was just picturing you researching this book and thinking it really must have been quite an endeavor. Well, like particularly for the UFO lore, uh, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, um, you know, I really wanted it to be as, as close as I could get to being right on. But, you know, obviously I had to make some concessions for the Star Trek take on certain events. Sure. But I really wanted, like, when I when you when you read about so and so as the commanding officer of the Blue Book project, if you check the timeline for th those projects, that's the guy who was running it back in the day. 
you know, like Major Quint uh, Quintanilla. He was he was the guy running it in the late '60s. He was the last uh, officer to run that project before they started shutting it down. I, I wanted those references to be as accurate as I could get away with. Uh, in fact, it, it actually caused a point of confusion because at one point my copy editor is asking me why why is this guy reporting to someone with a lower rank? And I said, well, that's the real guy who was running the project back in the day. You know, so we had to create a reason why why my main character who may have outranked whoever was in charge of the project was still taking you know directions from this guy. Yeah, there was a lot of back and forth in email about this, that, and the other with respect to some of the historical stuff. Well, uh, Dayton, one of the things too I was I was noticing in the book is this you you know you're jumping around in all these different places. How did you keep all the storylines straight while you were writing the book? I had a spreadsheet. <laughs> I had a spreadsheet with all the calendar dates that I wanted to use, and then um, I had a you know so it cross-referenced things that I would reference, like things that took place on certain dates in history. You know, like for example, the Gemini flights or the Mercury flights, um, because uh, well, you'll know since you've read it, you know that the the early space race uh, plays a part in the storyline. Uh, so. I, I was keeping track of all that, and then I got the bright idea to include, you know, a scene that takes place during one of the Gemini flights to build it into the into the storyline from from what I needed for the aliens. So yeah, I had a spreadsheet going with all the dates and cross references, and double check this, double check that. I'm kind of disappointed to hear that it was a spreadsheet because I had this vision of you in a room with <laughs> an entire white wall, and you're like mapping it out with colored markers, and your wife opens the door, and like, Dayton, what's going on in here? It started <laughs> well, as a whiteboard, if that helps. But I, I don't know. Okay. I'm even more disappointed. I thought it was going to be like a great conspiracy theorist room with all of these pictures <laughs> all over the wall, and then all of, you know, the string between, you well, know, it might pit, very well be, pins. but I'm just feeding you disinformation. <laughs> could be, yes. <laughs> Um, uh, that's how I'm going to take it. That's my new canon. There you go. <laughs> well, one of the things that uh, I noticed here, too, is that you notice how the characters end up with the headache of time travel. Just <laughs> the the ridiculousness of it as you try to, you know, compare and contrast all the different things that happen. And so, especially, you know, you don't have any time travel. You're talking about the temporal Cold War. And it really brought up for me this these questions that even the characters have of reality and, and how do we tell what's real, what's right in all of these different timelines if there's a bunch of different timelines and anything could happen in, in them. Um, you know, one place the Federation doesn't exist really and another place it does. I mean, I thought that was a really interesting aspect to have the characters kind of have to wrestle with when you start really looking at the repercussions of messing with time the way that these characters are. It was a it was a challenge to keep it all straight, and and to be honest, I actually went back and forth a couple of times uh, while writing the book because in my outline, my original outline, I I actually had Roberta Lincoln as being much older. Uh, I had her coming to the Enterprise, you know how she shows up basically a week after the events of Assignment Earth. But even though it's been a week for Kirk and the gang, it's been almost 25 or 30 years for her. So I, I had that in the original outline because I was trying to tie it more closely to Greg's uh, Eugenics Wars books. And then I realized that it was introducing problems that I wasn't going to have time or space to really pay attention to or address. So I went back and I rewrote those passages so that she was basically just a year later from the events that she remembers from the episode. 
Um, and, and I forget, there was something else that came into play while I was writing it that made me re redo certain scenes. Uh, actually, it was a Greg Cox book again. I don't know if you've read it. The Rings of Time uh, references – it's the book that has Sean Christopher. John, John Sean Christopher. Son. Right. Yes, right. yes, yes. Yeah. So he – I had made references to an older John Christopher in the 90s, and um, while I was in the midst of all this, Greg's book came out and uh, it, uh, laid out a different path for John Christopher that wasn't compatible with what I had written. And so I went back and had to redo some things featuring his character because I didn't want to uh, step on anything Greg had already done. So it was, uh, you know, it was a little bit. And then, of course, keep all the time jumping around straight, with especially for Roberta Lincoln, because she takes the lion's share of that problem, uh, coming from one one period in time. And, and as far as the Kirk and, and the gang are concerned, it's only been a week, and it's been a year for her, and uh, trying to keep it all straight. Yeah, it was it's a it was a challenge. I, I think I drank more than I normally do while writing this book. <laughs> I can understand that. One thing with the time travel here was the the idea of an alien race who fears that Earth is going to threaten their world at some point, and so they need to come and try to prevent that from happening, which is you know a lot like the way the Zindi approached Earth in Enterprise. Well, yeah, that was basically a outgrowth of the temporal Cold War because you've got the yeah. the aliens who came back during World War II and helped you know basically rewrote our history from World War II on, and so my idea was that you know extending that forward into the future, Earth becomes a much more militaristic power going out into space than than we end up being in our Star Trek timeline, and so the 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 aliens that are the guest aliens in this book they end up being victims of that at some point in the future in this altered timeline, so. Yeah, keeping all that straight. Who was who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And who remembers what? And all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> Not well, and and <laughs> too the the kind of ways that you're referencing things that have maybe happened in certain episodes, but happened in another timeline. I mean, that's a lot to keep track of um, because I noticed a few of those things in there, which uh, was really cool to see. You know, you pick up if you're paying attention, but. Um, Got to be hard to keep track of all that. It was hard, but it was it was you know it was part of the fun and it was part of the challenge. I, I you know I had been wanting to do this sort of thing, this particular book for a while now, so I, I I couldn't get I couldn't chicken out now. You know I can't remember Dayton if I've asked you before or not if you are a big fan of Enterprise, but I thought it was very cool right at the beginning where you actually bring Mestral in because picking up that character. Like I didn't know quite was what was going to happen at first, and just right there at the beginning, and then it's Mistral, and I thought, oh, that's brilliant to pick up this character. Is did that episode just mean something to you, or Enterprise as a series well, was that a big thing for you? Enterprise as a series has is is grown on me um, since it was first on. Um, I've I've had occasion to revisit various episodes over the years for this project or that project, and. I've come to, to appreciate it more than I did when it was first on. Um, and Carbon Creek, the episode you're talking about, is, is actually one of my favorites from, from the run. Uh, I really enjoy you – know, I, I enjoyed the whole aspect of the, you know, the pre-first contact Vulcans on Earth and the fact that he stayed behind. And To me, that was just begging for a follow-up. Definitely. I'm surprised that nobody beat me to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's been explored in a strange new world. In fact, it was explored in at least one strange new world story because I made the effort to make sure I didn't contradict that writer's story. 
that's why Mestral goes back to, you know, with Roberta at the end of the book, so that I could not step on that writer's toes. Because mm. originally I was going to have him stay and maybe go with the uh, the other alien and help out, you know, in the aftermath of, of the story, but I, I didn't want to disrespect the, the the other writer, so. Were you ever tempted to name this book from Velcro's Shadow? <laughs> no, but my original <laughs> my original working title was Aliens Among Us. Uh, that was going to be okay. that was the, that was the title I pitched, and my editor hated it, <laughs> so and asked me to change it. So I I, I sent uh, probably half a dozen alternative titles, and he picked uh, from History Shadow. Do you remember any of the other alternative titles? Off the top of my head, I don't, and they're and it's probably for good reason. They probably weren't very good. Um, I really wanted Aliens Among Us. I really fought long and hard for it, but I I got overruled. He 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 just thought it was too cheesy sounding. I said, yeah, but with that cover, it'll work. <laughs> it would that work is, with that cover. Yeah, that's one of the things too that I loved is just how you know these guys they always show up in these the classic you know suit you oh, know man, that, the men that, in black. that makes you, you know. exactly that makes you so nondescript and and they even have. I mean, you even feel like they're using the flashy thingy every mm-hmm. once in a while at people, which I I loved that that uh, that allusion to the fact that they're making people's memories disappear. Well, I mean, it wasn't it was not an accident that I made the 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 Egypt agents act like the Men in Black, you know, uh, the, in, in, in to include describing their dark gray clothing and the fact that they're servos, you know, the little pen like devices that Gary Seven had, um, you know, Great. those basically do the same thing that the flashy thingy does for Men in Black. Um, and of course, the Men in Black have been a part of UFO lore for decades. Yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah I want. I definitely did that on purpose. Uh, that that whole bit just was a lot of fun uh, to do. Yeah, I remember thinking about the Men in Black when I was a little boy, actually, because mm-hmm. I, you know, would hear about the the tales of them showing up. Oh yeah. At your house, so yeah. Yeah, that's just a. I, I, I think that for me, that's what really works about this book is the fact that you're using all of these things. And as you're reading it, you know, TOS is really only a framework for a fantastic science fiction story. Yeah, I mean, I guess I really could have gone, the if I'd been allowed to, I probably could have gone all the way and not even had a framing story. But um, that was probably too far into the niche, you know, for a Star Trek novel. I mean, I... I, I, I I'm okay with the notion that you know a Star Trek novel has to have some elements of familiarity for the casual reader, you know, because not everybody who picks this thing up is going to be versed in every detail of the Star Trek mythos. They're going to need something to anchor them, and so that's that's why there's a framing story there. And it was fun to involve. And originally, in my outline, my original version of the outline, uh, Kirk and Spock do not play the role they end up playing uh, as the story unfolds. Um, you know, they end up helping Roberta Lincoln. Uh, that was my editor's idea. She she suggested that I do that to, to get them more involved in the storyline, and it was and then I countered that by saying, well, what if I keep their identities secret as long as I can, you know? Uh, so that was the, that was fun. It was a good idea, and, and I'm glad I ended up working that way. It made it for a better a better way to involve Kirk and Spock. Yeah, I actually agree. I think at that point I was kind of looking for there to be a good tie-in for the you know the reason for it to be a TOS novel mm-hmm. instead of just its own standalone yeah. and and having Kirk and Spock have to come back there i think actually works really brilliantly so i'm i'm glad that y'all decided to do that together um, because i think it it finishes off the story strong yeah it was a good idea i mean i i wasn't sure if it would work but it was it was a good idea 
Um, anything else of just about this book that for you that was a real joy to get to be able to do? Well, it was for me the fun part was just trying to weave in those threads from Star Trek history and 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 have them make sense, you know, playing alongside bits of real history, um, you know, a reason for a character to be at this place on this date, you know, participating in certain events like the you know the Gemini mission or um, uh, the Sputnik launch or things like that. It was that was just fun because I'm a I'm I'm a big follower of the space program, so getting to dig into that stuff was is always fun for me. Um, in fact, I've already been asked I think a dozen times now by different people if I'm going to write more stories with these characters, and I'm like, well, I pretty much exhausted everything in this one book. I figured I'd only get away with one, but uh, you know, you never know. I guess if sales are good and the editor likes, you know, what what the reaction is, I, I could probably revisit the notion. But uh, I don't I don't know. I guess we'll see. Never say never. You know, I've learned to say that exactly. Well, uh, and. I'm going to say spoiler alert here because this is the very end of the book. So if you have not read this yet, please do not listen beyond this point. But I just want to ask Dayton something. <laughs> um, I loved the end of the book that it is the Future's End Voyager episode with all the TV coverage and he sees it on TV. I love that that's the end of the book. Um, I thought that that was just fantastic. Oh, thank you. That was... Uh... That was actually one of the things that ended up getting changed because, um, like I said earlier, I had a larger role planned for John Christopher, and he was actually the guy that sees the ship at at, at one point uh, on that scene. And when I and like and he was the one suffering from Alzheimer's and and trying to figure out if it was real or imagined or whatever. And once I read that Greg Cox had had different ideas about the character, I had to go back and I didn't want to lose that scene. Uh, but I ended up using, you know, it made sense to have Wainwright as the character in that scene. And then, right, originally it was not the last scene in the book. And then once I, once I decided that Wainwright was the perfect fit for that scene, then of course it made total sense to make it the epilogue of the book. How did it originally end? What was the last scene? I forget now. It's been so long. But I mean, it's basically it was a. Uh, I think it had something to do with the alien, you know, the get the the, the Sirtos aliens on their home planet that's not been ravaged by war, and there's you know, and Mestral was involved, and uh, but once yeah, once uh once I saw that Wainwright was the better fit for that scene, it, it that that scene worked nowhere else but as the epilogue. Yeah, and and to me it was a fitting end because it made a lot of sense with um, all of the UFO enthusiasm that you had had throughout the book, and and just ending with you know one of the biggest versions, which was Future's End and Voyager flying over LA. Um, it, it you know undeniably a, a UFO. Um, <laughs> I, I think that was yeah. just a fantastic way to end and tie everything together with um, you know the. You know, the only I feel like the only episode that doesn't really get tied in is um, Star Trek four. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Dayton. Uh, Star Trek four is the only one where we don't really see uh, it get tied in. But yeah. uh, I think that this works really well. Well, I mean, the the, re- the main reason that Star Trek four doesn't get pulled in is because the bulk of the of the 20th century storyline is fit between 1947 and 1969. So I really didn't have a reason to jump ahead, you know, those, those 16 or 17 years just to make a, a, a nod to Star Trek four. I thought about it. Uh, I just couldn't find a way that made, 
that that felt right to me. Um, but the, the 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 epilogue in 1996 with the Voyager that, that I had always had that some version of that scene, even going back to my first versions of the outline. You could have had the well probe monitoring Earth communications <laughs> back in the. Yeah. 50s and 60s. <laughs> Somehow the whale probe is part of the temporal cold war. Yeah, and I got asked, yeah. like, why didn't I include Guinan? You know, uh, you know, because we saw that Guinan was on Earth during the late 19th uh-huh. century. You know, she was in San Francisco in the 1890s. And so I had been asked, I think yeah. I've been asked by at least two people why Guinan didn't show up as a guest role in the book. And I didn't, I was. Did you tell them it's because her hat was yeah. too big to fit into the book? <laughs> She would have covered up the rest of the hats on the cover. I don't know that there was anything ever definitive about when she left Earth or how long she stayed on Earth. I can't uh, and remember I, anything. I, didn't, I looked around and couldn't find anything definitive one way or the other, but I just didn't have a role for her that, that was a little more than it. You know, nothing, I, could have, I could have stuck her in one scene as a cameo, but I, I just didn't have anything where I needed her in a substantial role. Uh, you know, I already had Mestrel, and I had – I already had a lot of characters that I was juggling. Uh, including several that the that the that the reader the casual reader didn't know, so I, I figured I was pushing my luck at at that point when I started including Mestrel. Yeah, I think I think it works. You know, if you if you put Guinan in there, you do want her to have some sort of a media role, and, and yeah. it, there's not really a place to really you know fit her in and, and give her that kind of role that it's not just oh hey it's Guinan everybody's yeah. like ha, ha, ha. and i thought about including flint you know from uh, the you know the immortal from requiem from methuselah from the original series i i yes. I, I considered yeah. putting him in there somewhere but greg had already done that in the eugenics wars books and i didn't want to i didn't want to uh, parrot that so uh, for me mestrel was that character yeah i thought that the Inclusion of Carbon Creek is fantastic. I'm with you, Dayton. It is one of my favorite uh, Enterprise episodes. I I think it's really well done. Just a, a, a one of those things that I feel like um, when you look back at uh, Enterprise, it really hit out of the park that episode. And a lot of people were just kind of like, eh, when they saw it the first time. But I thought from the beginning that it was really good. Um, and uh, having you play off of that and use him as a character, I'm with you. I wanted to know what else happened to that guy. So yeah, yeah. It was, to me, it was just like I said. It, it begged for a follow up when the episode aired, and they never did. But and like I said, I'm surprised that nobody beat me to using him in a meaty role in some other novel or or story. Uh, and like I said, he factors in some strange new world stories, but uh, or at least one. I don't. But uh, the 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 main line continuity, if you will, of the of the novels and stuff don't. For whatever reason, they tend not to. They tend to overlook the Strange New Worlds stories, and I, like I said, I made a conscious decision. I didn't want to to, to step on what the other writer uh, Ben Gilfoy had done with Mestrel, so which is why he goes, why Mestrel goes back to Earth at the end of my story, so that he can be on hand for the events of his story. Right. No, I love that. I I think it's it's great when the writers can work their story to be respectful of other stories. I think that that's really cool. Um, you know, as you said, it gets hard to try and make everything all fit. But, I mean, if you can and it yeah, works well can, for the yeah. story you're writing, why not? Exactly. I mean, to me, it's just part of the fun and part of the challenge. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it, it um, there's there's something about it, you know, uh, you know, whereas in, say, Star Wars literature where they try and fit everything in and actually make it work, 
you know, Star Trek is a little bit looser, um, and I like that. Um, but I, I appreciate when the authors respect each other enough to say, I, I don't want to step on your toes if I don't have to. And, and that's that's just a really cool thing uh, for me to pay attention to. Usually when I've had to overwrite something, or overwrite's the wrong term, whenever I've had to introduce a different take on a particular character, it's usually because I've had that discussion with the editor and I've, I've broached that concern like, hey, so-and-so did X with this character in that book or whatever. And a lot of times we're talking about a book that's 20 or 25 years old. You know, like uh, uh, for the book I did last year, I had Lieutenant Boma, you know, from the Galileo 7 episode. Right. And, you know, he factored in a couple of books that were written back in the 80s. Um, and when when it was suggested that I use Boma for the for this for that story, uh, you know, I brought up, hey, well, you know, his his character arc did this in those two books, and you know, they said, well, yeah, that was twenty five or thirty years ago. Do your go ahead and do your thing. Right. So you know, I've, I've had that happen a couple times because the you know the continuity of the of those books is not as coherent or not as right. consistent as the, as we try to be now. So, but again, you know, if if you can make it work, uh, I'm I'm all for it. I love making nods and references and hat tips to older stuff no i and i think that that's one of those things to where it you you're you're paying off those older fans and you're not ruining anything for anyone else you know if you don't get it you're not really losing yeah. a ton but if you do get it that's fantastic and and you just get rewarded for um you know your longevity as a fan i think that's well, I mean, i've been reading these things since i was a kid and i was buying them when they were coming right. out so uh, I'm I'm as much a fan as anybody, so yeah. If I can if yeah. I can make a salute to an older work, you know, and like I like if you, if you're paying attention to the Vanguard books, you'll see references to the Franz Joseph material mm-hmm. all through those books, uh, and even the old role playing game from the '80s and the animated show and whatever we can get away with, basically. And what's really mm-hmm. funny is the people that that approve our work, you know, at CBS licensing, they're pretty savvy. It's very rare that we get a reference past them. <laughs> You know, they'll, right. they'll come back and they'll say, oh. I know where you got that from. I read that book too. So. <laughs> That's great. That's cool. um, well, Dayton, I wanted to just uh, check in. I know that you're, um, you've are you got Peaceable Kingdoms coming out next year early, and then you, you're starting work on a brand new series, The Seekers. And so I just wanted to see um, if there is anything that you can you can talk about with those two. Um, you know, uh, The Peaceable Kingdoms will be the, the wrap-up to the fall series, which has got to be a big deal for you, um, wrapping up a whole huge series. Um, and then, of course, the Seekers, that's another big deal, is jumping off the Vanguard series, but kind of going in a different direction. So, Yeah, um, the my book, Peaceable Kingdoms, is going to, like you said, it's going to wrap up this five-book miniseries called The Fall. And I'm basically... Picking up a lot of different plot threads that have, were handed off. I'm not. They weren't left hanging. They were. They were. They were set up deliberately for. For, you know, like Dave Mack or David George, they set things in motion that the other writers then pick up and carry mm-hmm. forward um, on purpose. And then you know, I'm batting cleanup this time. So uh, I really can't say much about what my book does without risking spoiling any of the other books. You know. Uh, which is it's kind of weird because did you find it challenging? It was very challenging because the the the, the five books take place the, the the events across the five books take place in such a short time frame, and when I mean I mean right. inside the box inside the tar, inside the Star Trek timeline, we're only talking about a sixty day window or so where all the events of all five books wow. take place, and it's a very very intense sixty days. Um, 
but all of the events key off one another and or you know there's you know this event begets these repercussions which then get picked up in the next book and um, it's it's going to start with a bang David R George the 3rd is the writer for the first book and he will kick this into gear here in about a week when his book drops yes and, uh, i expect then that people will be uh, well by then you know by then certain things will ha will be out and known and then you can start to figure out where plots will take you for the next books but right. uh, i i don't even want to risk talking about it because I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. Yeah, without any details. Now, of course, you're a big fan and you've been reading the, the novel since you were a kid. Just as a fan, when you read the first four books in the series, how did you feel? I felt intimidated because I had to keep up with these four writers. Um, all of them brought their A-game. Um, I mean, we're talking, you know, David George, Una McCormick, David Mack, Jim Swallow. All of them are strong writers. Um, all of them brought their A-game. Uh, I was very... Uh, intimidated in the hopes that I could keep up with them. Uh, I'd like to think I did okay, so we'll, we'll see what happens. And what can you tell us about uh, your new Seeker series that you'll be continuing uh, on Vanguard kind of storyline, but with uh, David uh, Mack and, and... Yeah, David Mack, Kevin Dilmore, and I, uh, we, we, had, we hatched this crazy plan uh, of taking certain elements that were left over from the Vanguard series namely the two ships that were assigned to the former Starbase 47, uh, the mm -hmm. Sagittarius, the little Archer-class scout with a crew of 14, and the Endeavor, which is a Constitution-class ship like the Enterprise, we are spinning them out into their own series. They, uh, at the end of the Vanguard series, uh, we basically put forth the notion that these two ships have been given new orders to explore the Taurus Reach in a vein similar to what the Enterprise is doing during its five-year mission. Right. When we did that, we didn't have any plans to follow up with that. We just that was where we sent them, and, and then you know a, a confluence of events uh, saw to it that we had the perfect idea for a spinoff series if Pocket was willing to listen. Um, and they were very eager when they when they heard we were plotting. You know, the three of us were back together again trying to plot something. They were very excited about this idea, and CBS was very supportive of the idea. They approved it with very minimal. Very minimal fuss. Uh, we had a couple questions we had to answer and clarify, but out of that, they were they were behind us 100%. Um, so basically, what we're doing is we're going to take the ships, we're going and we're going to do the same thing we did on Vanguard, where uh, we alternate the book duties. Dave will write the odd books, and Kevin and I will write the even number books. And we'll actually, even though it's one series, each book will focus on one ship. So Dave is taking the Sagittarius. And Kevin and I are taking the Endeavor, and our each of our books will focus on that ship and its crew. And then we'll just basically pass the baton back and forth. Um, the stories will be more standalone than Vanguard was in terms of there's not gonna, there's not this huge meta story arc that's driving the entire series. Um, but there will be character development and character arcs that, that will cover multiple books. Um, but the stories themselves will be largely standalone. You'll be able to read them in any order. And then, of course, the you know the format lends itself to us teaming up for the occasional two-parter, you know, multi-book storyline right. if we want to. And it's not really a, it's not really continuing Vanguard. I mean, as far as we're concerned, the three of us, Vanguard, that story is over. Uh, we've done what we wanted to do with that, and we're not looking to uh, milk that cow anymore. Uh, right. We're trying to take these guys off in a completely different direction. That's really cool. Did you decide to go standalone in the stories because of kind of a feeling like you guys wanted to return. You know, the books have become so intertwined these days. 
And whereas in the past we used to have mostly standalone stories, well, did you kind it's of a little bit of feel that, an urge to go back to that? It's a little bit of that, but it's also just pure nostalgia because it, uh, one thing I didn't talk about was the cover art that's that that inspired this thing. What happened was we learned of an artist uh, named Rob Caswell who was creating art on his Deviant Art page that was inspired by the, the Archer class Sagittarius and other Star Trek ships. Uh, he was creating his own fake book covers for an imaginary series that he had devised that he called The Seekers. And it was and, and all of his cover art mimicked uh, or or paid paid homage to, you know, the old nineteen seventies Star Trek novels like the the, right. you know, the James Blish adaptations or the, the mm -hmm. those books the Bantam books you know with those sense of wonder covers you know the ship is really small against this immense interstellar scene that that the artist painted so we found out that he was doing this and that's when Dave and Kevin and I started thinking well you know what if we pitched this idea as a series and then of course we took it the 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 next step by getting Pocket to hire the artist Rob Caswell as to be the artist for our books so he's essentially going to take his idea that he generated and we're going to take our idea of the storylines and he's going to be our cover artist so we're going to the books will have a, a definite look that's different from the Vanguard books of course I love all the cover art for those books too but uh, we definitely wanted a different flavor for, for this and that's one of the things that we decided to do for this one was the books themselves won't even have titles it's just going to be Star Trek Seekers and then a big number on the cover like the old James Blish books from the 70s. That's awesome. So Seekers 1, Seekers 2, right on down the line. So, I mean, the upside is, you know, you don't have to worry about what order to read them in. That's really cool. I love that. Yeah, it's we just decided we wanted to pay, you know, pay tribute to those books that, you know, we grew up reading. And as far as being standalone, I mean, standalone is the, the term, but... I don't know that we're going to be 100% locked into that formula. It's just we're just trying to distinguish it from the driving serial that was Vanguard, um, and to a, and to a, and, and and some of the 24th century stuff. You know, we just we definitely wanted to be more episodic in terms of the storyline, but we there definitely will be character growth, character arcs um, over the course of the books. However many there's going to be, we have no idea. And and unlike Vanguard, which we knew was going to be a limited series, we just didn't know exactly the number of books that were going to be involved. You know, this is designed to go. In theory, as long as they'll have us, right? That's great. I love that. Well, uh, Dayton, what else uh, can uh, you tell us? Where can people find you? What else is in the pipeline for you? What have you got out now that uh, you can promote? This is your spot. Well, as always, you can find me on the internet at uh, DaytonMoore.com. That's my portal to my blog and my Facebook page and my Twitter feed. And uh, as far as what I'm working on right now. It, or what I've been doing in addition to the Star Trek stuff, one thing I'd really like to to shout out about is uh, I wrote a a science fiction story that's sort of a retro 40s, 50s pulp science fiction story uh, with a character that we call Dylan McCade, or Space Marshal Dylan McCade, kind of like awesome. a, in the vein of you know Commander Cody or uh, yes. uh, Flash Gordon or Captain Proton even, because mm -hmm. that's really where the character got originated from. And uh, a friend of mine named David Taylor took my story and adapted it for an audio drama and got a full cast of actors to do the voices, and he got music composed for it and sound effects. And uh, so it became a six-part audio drama in the style of an old 40s radio serial. So we call it The Adventures of Space Marshal Dylan McCade, The Terror of Entropia's Ice Cannon, which is awesome. about as easy and 40s retro as you can get in a title. 
And That's perfect. Anybody who's interested can come to my website, datemore.com, and get all the full details, including links to where you can read the story and download all the pieces of the audio drama, and it's all free. Cool. And a lot of our listeners are familiar with David by his Twitter name, Sci-Fi Comics. Yes, yeah, Sci-Fi Comics. Uh, he right, joins yeah. us from time to time on on some of our shows too. He uh, he took he undertook the Herculean task of taking my short story and turning it into an audio drama, and and did what I thought was a fantastic job. And all the actors who portray, you know contributed their voice talent uh, did a phenomenal job bringing it to life. That's Very great. Cool. And and if it's well received, and so far it seems to be fairly well received, but you know it's we're just we're trying to get the word out. Um, you know if, if people think it's worth doing again, we'll 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 uh, revisit the idea. That's awesome. It was definitely fun. It was a nice change of pace. Oh, I bet. I love when things get turned into old school radio dramas. I think that's really cool. I grew up listening to some um, radio dramas as a kid, and um, there's just something about them, and they're they're a lot of fun, and especially if they're just done well with great production. There's there's not a lot that's much more fun than listening to something like that. Yeah, it was a. It's a, I, I'm a, I'm an audio book, audio drama, radio drama listener. I love all that stuff, and so this was a lot of fun. And I had always wanted to do a Captain. We talked before about my Captain Proton fetish. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I still want to do that, Pocketbooks, if you're listening. Um, but <laughs> what happened was it was just an odd confluence. What happened was David Taylor contacted me on Twitter and asked me if I was interested in participating in this project. They wanted to do a pulp science fiction radio drama, and if I wanted to write something or if I had something. And as it turned out, I had a Captain Proton story in my files that I had written years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just the right length. Uh, it had all the right beats. It had cliffhanger endings for each chapter, and last time on blah blah blah. And so all I did was rewrite it to take away all the Captain Proton and uh, Star Trek references, and you know freshen up the jokes a little bit, and add a couple right. of characters. And uh, I switched. I think I switched some characters from gender, you know, like male to female, that kind of thing. Like I turned the bad guy from Doctor Chaotica to Empress Entropia. Awesome. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. It was just a lot of fun to rework it, and then you know he he did all the heavy lifting. He he's the one who did all the work to adapt it for audio. That's great. So yeah, I'm definitely up to do it again. Really appreciate uh, you joining us um, tonight. Uh, love talking about this new book. I, I think that uh, if you haven't read it, people, you need to get out there and read this one. This is a this is probably my favorite TOS book of the year, and there's been a lot of them. So um, I really appreciate all the work that you put into this date and, uh, because it really did turn out fantastic. Um, and so um, I hope people will go out and get this because it really is a great book. And then, of course, um, you've got um, Peaceful Kingdoms that will be coming out by you. Um, and, of course, the fall starts in just a week. So I'm, I hope that everybody will go out and support that as well, the big 24th century adventure which uh, i think a lot of fans we've just been kind of waiting for this kind of crossover so uh good stuff and we really appreciate you being on with us tonight oh well thanks for having me i, I and and thank you for the the comments about the book uh saying it's the best tos book that you've liked this year it's that's saying a lot because there have been some strong ones this year so i appreciate that yeah it was great i loved it well thanks thanks for your time tonight dayton no thanks again y'all take care well, Matthew, it's always fun when we have Dayton on the shows to talk about books or whatever we talk about. He's uh, one of our uh, most fun guests to chat with. 
Yeah, I love getting to have the authors on, Chris, uh, to Literary Treks. I, I think it's one of the joys of getting to do this, um, getting to, to pick their brain, uh, hear what it is like to write Star Trek, and kind of get inside that world is, is pretty fantastic. So I'm always glad when they, they uh, decide to join us. It's always an honor to have them on, and so we really do thank Dayton for taking time out of his busy schedule um, to uh, be on and talk about his brand new book. Absolutely. And you know, this isn't the only thing that we've been talking about this week. We've uh, conducted a lot of interviews and recorded a lot of shows this week. So here's some other stuff that you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Orb, The Marquee. But then he tells Eddington, I'm going to do this to all the other Maquis planets as well. And it's, you, you don't F with the Cisco is basically what we get to here. <laughs> <laughs> do not... Frack with the Cisco. <laughs> exactly. The ready room. The cute and the gray. Well, there's there's kind of two sides to his guide to romance, though, because while we do see his uh, futile attempts with Catherine Janeway, there's also the interaction he has with the female Q, which I found be much more interesting. Decade. STO Foundry Alpha Flight. It's quite light. The main thing is he gets to fly around, test your flying skills. And test your ability to withstand Hold combat. I think we failed in that subject. <laughs> but let's just ignore that. To the journey! Life on Voyager. Well, I'm just saying Whoa. there was a certain, you know, there was a time period when the Doctor was, you know, like a Ken doll. So that's all I'm saying. I would not be a Ken doll. <laughs> let's put okay. it that way. Commentary, Trek stars. Hell House. And I think that this book largely is about how sexual indulgences can get lumped in together with a lot of other forms of, of, of transgression, moral and ethical and personal. Warp 5. Paul. Certainly she'd always had a dry humour all of the way through. We saw that more probably from season two onwards. And if we think about the sensuality and the feline movements from, as well as, as she's described it, then... I don't think we really saw that until she started to explore her emotions more. Trek news and views. Blood Oath and Michael and Zara. <laughs> Obviously it has Dax in it, so win, but... Um, the one thing that, that DS9 has done for me has it's given me a greater appreciation of Klingons. Literary Treks. Nero Comics. This place feels terrible and horrible and such a good job, I think, by the artist to really create a of sense of, of that, yeah. yeah a menace into this place like you don't want to be at repente it really does feel yeah. like the aliens graveyard and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out all of these shows and get your daily trek talk fix we have a new star trek talk for you every day of the week some days we even have two shows for you and you'll find them on itunes stitcher tune in the windows podcast directory for windows phone xbox zune you can stream them from the website. You can download files from the website. We're pretty much everywhere you get your podcasts, just like Jeffrey Combs is. We're everywhere. So give us a listen. And you can go to trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get all the links. Now, Matthew, let's tell everyone where to contact us as well if they'd like to share their thoughts on From History Shadows, on Dayton's other books, 
the comics that we talked about news today, anything they want to talk about, you can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks. And that will come to Matthew and me by email. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can do that as well. Look on the right-hand side of any page on the website. You'll see a tab that says send voicemail. Just click that. A box will pop up. You can record a message to us there and upload it to us as an MP3 file. If you'd like to chat with other listeners, you can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums where there's a section for books and comics and there's one for literary treks as well. So join in the bigger conversation. And then in social media, you'll find us at facebook.com slash trekfm. And then you'll find us on Twitter where we tweet about Star Trek round the clock under username trekfm. Now, Matthew, what if people would like to look you up personally? Where should they go? Well, if you'd like to do that, you can check me out on Twitter at MattRushing02. Just getting back into Twitter a little bit after such a busy summer. Uh, you can also check me out on my own blog at uh, 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. And then, of course, Chris, you can check us out uh, together on The Orb every week. So if you enjoy a little Deep Space Nine talk or, hey, maybe you just need to be talked into watching the best Star Trek show out there, let Chris and I do that for you <laughs> on The Orb. Chris, uh, you know... That's what we do every It's so week. true. It really is. Now, Chris, uh, when you're not hiding in the shadows, where can people find you? Well, you know, I'm I'm usually um, hiding out at Area 51. You know, I've got my own special little secret projects <laughs> going on out there as well. But, you know, if you, can, if you can breach security and actually get onto the base, then you can find me and we can talk about Star Trek. Or if you want an easier way to do it, just look me up on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username. And you'll find my personal website at cbrianjones.com where I do talk about things besides Star Trek as well. And we'll keep most of the college football talk over there on that site as well here coming up in autumn. Also, you'll find me elsewhere on the network every week. Besides the orb, of course, you'll find me on Tuesdays on The Ready Room, where I'm joined by other hosts from all over the Trek of Film Network, including you sometimes, Matthew, as well as other special guests as we talk about all five live-action Star Trek series and other various topics. And also on Fridays, you'll find me with Kate Walsh, where we talk about Star Trek Enterprise. So check those shows out as well. And also, Matthew, before we let everyone go, we'd like to ask you to please support our sponsors for this week's show. Your support of our sponsors is very important to making it possible for us to bring literary treks to you every week. First, there's Squarespace, the web's best hosting in CMS that makes it simple for you to create a beautiful blog, website, portfolio, online store, really anything you can imagine. Maybe even your own dedicated site about the fall series that's coming up. So create your own space today. I promise you're going to love it. Go to squarespace.com for your free 14-day trial. There's no credit card required. And then when you sign up, use offer code TREK8 to save 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts. And we really thank Squarespace for their support of Trek of Film and Literary Treks and you for supporting Squarespace. Also, please visit trekfan.org. This is a great opportunity for you to come together with other Star Trek fans to solve puzzles and complete real-life mission objectives. It's kind of like you're a Starfleet officer yourself, and along the way, you'll win great prizes, and you'll help move us towards that Star Trek future that we all love. So support us and support TrekFan by visiting trekfan.org. Solve that first puzzle and take the next step on your adventure. And we thank TrekFan for their support of Trek of Film as well. 
And lastly, if you would personally like to support the network and our programming, visit trek.fm donate. We have eight alien-themed badges as a thank you for your contributions. You know, they're perfect for your shirt or your bag or for your 1960s U.S. military uniform. They're 44-millimeter badges with original illustration by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the art that you see on our website. And we also have art prints now as well, which are really beautiful A5 size art prints. And you can mix and match, you know, choose which ones you want as badges, choose which ones you want as art prints. And uh, you can get it all at trek.fm slash donate. There are different contribution levels that you can make. And your donations help us cover the costs of production, storage, and bandwidth that's needed to bring this programming to you every week. And we really thank you for your support of Trek FM. We'd like to say thank you, everyone, for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. Recording. Seven's fancy pants. <laughs> what am I talking about? Seven doesn't wear pants. They're like skin tight leotard thingies. Yeah, they're not really pants, right? They're just. Yeah. I don't just know how she gets into that tights. suit. But it's one question you'd ever ask is how does Seven get dressed? Um, like I can, I can just see Chakotay with her on the holodeck <laughs> trying to. He's like, how do I get you out of this thing? How did you even get into this thing? <laughs> She's like, I beam into it every morning. <laughs> <laughs> she beams into it. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, she goes She goes to the transporter room and is naked and then just rematerializes with a, a you know, uniform on. <laughs> So so everyone on the ship is trying to get transporter duty in the mornings. <laughs> it like 0600 and when 7 comes in naked. <laughs> you wonder why Harry Kim started wanting transporter duty instead of bridge duty. Oh, poor Harry Kim. Uh, he wouldn't be able to walk around straight for a month. The other side of the page. <laughs>